welcome to Travelog, the Conan Ask Traveler podcast. I am obviously not Brad Rickman. He is in Athens right now, but my name is Meredith Carey, and I'm a podcast producer. You've probably heard my voice and my awkward laugh many a time on the <laughs> podcast. But today we have a really exciting group of people here to talk about what goes on behind the scenes when you are sitting in your airline seat. And so we have regular Catherine Lagrave, who's a traveler editor. Hello. And we have Sidra, who is here, who actually has been a Delta flight attendant and gate agent and now works at Conde Nast. Hello. And we have John Cox, who's calling in from St. Petersburg, Florida, not Russia, um, to chat with us, <laughs> who has been a pilot for a while and is an aviation expert. Glad to be here. So my first question is going to be a real softball, which is, what is the one thing that people always get wrong about both of your jobs when you worked in the airline industry? I could go ahead. Uh, I think people always assume that flight attendants are less qualified than they are just (laughs) as human beings. I remember frequently being underestimated. One time I was sitting in the jump seat across from a passenger and we just were having a nice conversation about like our our life in general and it came up that I was a graduate of Emory University and he w- gave me this horrible thing like well, what are you doing as a flight attendant and I was just both offended and and I think it's a really common misconception that a lot of people have um, like when I was in flight attendant school for three months I had people who were teachers nurses I think we even had one former doctor who was a flight attendant. So it's just a wide range of people and backgrounds working in that job. I feel like a lot of people don't realize that like your flight attendant is not there just to like pass out your drink. Like they're there to keep you safe. (laughs) I feel like that's something that probably doesn't make it across a lot of people's minds as they ask for their peanuts and their pretzels. Absolutely. (laughs) How about you, John? Um, I think the one that I get the most is, what route do you fly? Well, we fly pretty much all over the world and in a whole variety of weather conditions, and we change our the schedule at least every month. So there isn't a single route that any of us fly. We're all kind of all over the place. So uh, I think that's one that people assume that you're flying the same trip back and forth on a regular basis when it's not really the, the facts. You talked earlier this week or last week with Mark Elwood, who's also on the podcast pretty regularly, and he had mentioned to me that you have this crazy story about seeing the sun rise or set in the West. Can you please explain what happened? (laughs) Sure. Pilots get, it's one of the greatest jobs in the world because we get to see a lot of things that nobody else gets to see being in the front of the airplane. And so one of the stories that uh, I have a lot of fun with is have you ever seen the sunrise in the West? And of course, everybody looks at me like I'm completely crazy and say, of course not. Well, we have. And they say, how did you manage that? And it's a short story about us. We were departing Pittsburgh going to San Francisco. And there was air traffic delays and first one thing and another. And they had us out on the runway awaiting takeoff clearance as we watched the sun, a beautiful sunset. Uh, in the western Pennsylvania sky and then we finally got our takeoff clearance and we took off and from the vantage point of our climbing jet we watched the sunrise in the west. That's so crazy. Oh my goodness. I feel like I see pictures online of what it's like looking out the front from the pilot seat and the only experience I've had with that is on like a tiny puddle jumper in the Caribbean where like I am sitting in the co-pilot seat and just like 
why does the pilot not have his hands on the wheel <laughs> while he fills out paperwork? Um, but that's like the only time I've ever gotten to see that. So I think that that's definitely one of those things. That I you think that's a good point, though, right? I mean, a lot of people like we get questions. I'm not a pilot, but we get, you know, one of the, the most common questions is like, well, what do pilots and flight attendants actually do on long flights? You know, some people, I think, think pilots just sort of sit up there and look out the window when they're sort of coasting along. <laughs> As John laughed. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we have a story um, about this on our site, but I would love to hear you talk about like everything that you're actually doing. You know, people think, oh, autopilot, you know, they're just up there reclining. <laughs> it, it's a good bit more complicated than that. The <laughs> workload drops off uh, once you've got, you know, you're out of about 10,000 feet. And that's true. But, you know, you're keeping up with the fuel burn, you're talking to air traffic control, you're making sure that the airplane is navigating the way that you expect it to. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot going on. It's at a pace you get very used to after you do this for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. You know, you, you, it's a nice routine you can get into, but there's something going on pretty much all the time. Okay. And is that rule about pilots chit-chatting below 10,000 feet? Can you talk to us a little about that, True? The, it's, it's called the sterile cockpit rule, and, and the rule is that you don't have a conversation with the other pilots or pilots that isn't directly related to the airplane and safety in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, we run checklists, you know, do you see that traffic? What did he say? All of those are routine things, but, you know, hey, how are your kids? <laughs> yeah. We leave that for 10,000 feet and above. So does that mean Sidra's not calling the cockpit and saying, hey, turn down the temperature back here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We weren't allowed to call them uh, until we hit 10,000 feet. And uh, during that time during takeoff, it's a really critical time for everyone. In our minds, we're reviewing emergency procedures uh, in case there is an evacuation, because that is the most dangerous time of flight. So it's a really important safety time for both pilots and flight attendants. I feel like that's so interesting because I feel like every flight where I've been like, oh my gosh, like what is that person doing? It's been like in takeoff or landing and it's like, why are you standing in the middle of the aisle right now? Um, which I think is crazy that you guys, I mean, have to deal with that on your own with that. Yeah, absolutely. Things definitely have happened well during takeoff where I'm just like, please explain oh things. <laughs> like the overhead bin flying open during takeoff, and I just see a, a bag about to crash land on an old lady's head, and so I'm weighing my options of do I get up where I'm not supposed to get up, or do I go and save the old lady? I definitely ran and sprinted and closed that overhead bin in time before the the bag landed on the lady. But that was that was one of those many moments. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's one of those secret facts that a lot of people don't know and sort of are really interested in at least stories on our site. You know, like why you have to raise the window shades. It sort of goes back to what you're talking about being um, takeoff and landing, being the most dangerous parts of a flight. The secret stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Always does well for us. Yeah. Right? So your eyes can be acclimated so flight attendants can see, chime in here, I'm not a flight attendant, <laughs> can see out the window, um, you know, see if there's anything on the tarmac. There's a fire. Yeah, exactly. If there were to be an evacuation, you're going to want to check out the window and see if there's fire before being able to open one of the emergency doors. So that's why I believe it's more of a dated policy. A lot of the, some yeah. airlines, I think, have that policy. Some don't about having the window shades open in the emergency exit rows. But that's the reason why, so that we could see out the window and make sure that it's safe to open an emergency exit in the case of an evacuation. Not so you can just boss people around. <laughs> fun and oh, that too. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> 
when you've got an unplanned evacuation, a lot of things happen in a hurry. The flight attendants are meticulously trained on how to get everybody out of the airplane in 90 seconds. It's amazing to watch it actually occur. But when that happens, the captain's got a lot of decisions to make because it's his or her call to whether you initiate the evacuation. And one of the big considerations is you people get injured during evacuations. It's a full-blown emergency. So you don't start that process lightly. I mean, there's, you really carefully consider it. But you want everything on your side that you possibly can. You want everybody on the correct side of the airplane, away from a potential fire. We need as much help from the passengers as we can get. One of those is keep your seatbelt fastened, listen to the flight attendants, know where the exits are, keep your shoes on, and you know, follow instructions. Yeah, you mentioned the 90-second thing, and I remember we had last year a few instances in terms of evacuations where people were trying to open the overhead bin and get out their bags on the way because they think they oh, have yeah. more time, and the 90 seconds is just kind of like this arbitrary rule. Yeah, uh, don't do that. <laughs> <It's not>. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, if there is an evacuation, do not grab your bag. Just just get off the plane. But so that's the amount of time that the FAA has determined? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a certification rule, but it's proven to be pretty accurate that you have 90 seconds before even a pretty bad fire actually becomes life-threatening. And so if you can get everybody out of the airplane... Even in a very serious condition, the likelihood of people being badly injured by the fire goes down dramatically. So that 90 seconds has proven to be pretty accurate. Yeah. I think that there was a point, oh gosh, like a year and a half ago when this app came out and it was like a virtual reality app and it was like, okay, you're playing... You know, something oh, has yeah. happened to it. Something happened during takeoff or landing, and there's a fire. It was the first person game, and you would have to, like, okay, take off my seatbelt, like, grab my shoes. What is the next step? And I think <laughs> everyone in the office, like, died every time because we <laughs> did the wrong thing every time. Is there any, like, one thing? It's just listen to the flight attendants. Like, that's your yes, best advice. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a very strict set of commands that we're yelling to the passengers that's been predetermined so that. In the event of an emergency, it's just instinct that kicks in on our part. So, gosh, these commands were just drilled into my head. So I was dreaming them during flight attendant training, and <laughs> like I still, waking up in the middle exactly, of the night shouting them. Yes, exactly. And I still, I still could do these commands very, very quickly. And, and probably, if there were an emergency on my flight, I just start yelling them myself <laughs> as a passenger. But yes, they're there in order to make sure that we're saying the right thing. Um, so it's not something we have to think about. Uh, so just listen to the flight attendants. It's the and the pilots. I think something that's come up in the news a lot recently is turbulence causing a lot of injuries, which I think is in part because people aren't wearing their seatbelt, mm -hmm. um, in part because turbulence has gotten more, what's the word? More worse, for? more bad. Yeah, no, more, I'm just more worse. Um, <laughs> turbulence has no, gotten increased. more prevalent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as to regular flyers, what would you say is your worst? turbulence story I actually, oh boy if you don't if you're an I'm anxious so flyer probably stop listening stop listening now um i'll go ahead because i actually had a really bad experience i hit the ceiling um oh yeah so when i was a flight attendant it was a smooth flight completely completely smooth flight blue skies uh landing in atlanta and I was picking up trash uh, just before we were about to take our jump seats the last run where the flight attendants come down the aisle to grab trash 
we hit a pocket of turbulence. I flew to the ceiling, hit my head on the ceiling. I didn't know I hit my head, but all the other passengers were telling the other flight attendant, she hit her head, she hit her head. I found myself face down in the aisle, like trash everywhere. There were drinks all over the <laughs> ceiling. This was, I mean, this was classified as severe turbulence oh, when boy. something like that happens. It's not usual, like very, very rare. And I was unlucky enough to be on two flights in a year and a half that had severe oh, turbulence. Boy. But it can happen, so it's so important to keep your seatbelt fastened when you are seated. It is, I can't stress that enough because, I mean, blue skies, beautiful day, um, not a bump during the rest of the flight, and still that happened to me. Because, John, you guys have a lot of access to seeing, with the exception of clear air turbulence, pilots have a lot of access to meteorology reports and being able to tell from other planes like when you're going to experience turbulence, correct? Yes and no. We can tell, uh, we've got real-time information from the onboard weather radar about thunderstorms. They can produce a lot of turbulence. The wake turbulence of other airplanes can sometimes surprise you. If you see it, you can visualize where the likelihood of a wake turbulence encounter may be. But clear air turbulence, it can catch you absolutely by surprise. And there's no way to know that it's there. If you get a turbulence event, pilots are real good about reporting it as, hey, we just, you know, we just got a moderate or, or more or severe uh, turbulence encounter and every other pilot on the radio frequency will hear it and want to know where it was. So we exchange a lot of information, but let me reinforce what she just said. The single largest thing a passenger can do to promote their own safety is keep your seatbelt fastened. Unless I'm going to the lab, I, any minute, every second that I'm in the seat, that seatbelt is at least loosely fastened to keep me out of the overhead if we do hit turbulence. Hmm. And what was your worst experience with turbulence, John? You really want to hear that? I do, <laughs> I do. Um, Our office weirdly has a lot of like pretty anxious flyers, and yeah. I think Catherine and I are not anxious flyers, correct? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I think we'll be okay. Tell me. Yeah. Well, this was a long time ago, it was 1980, and I was flying at that time a turboprop, uh, a large turboprop. We left Asheville, North Carolina, going to Knoxville, Tennessee. It was 65 degrees in Asheville. It was snowing in Knoxville. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we were going to have to go through a very major front. Uh, we knew there was going to be a lot of turbulence in it. We gave everybody warning about it, and with the mountains there... Everything in the airplane that wasn't tied down was flying around, including those big, thick books that we use for have airports and all of that. Those were flying around in the cockpit. And this went on for about 40 minutes as we went over to Knoxville continuously. And we got there. The snow was so thick, we realized if we got in, we'd never get the airplane back out because they didn't have that much de-icing. So we turned back around and flew through the same front coming back. I bet your passengers were really, really <laughs> Well, happy. we learned a number of things. People can be so scared they quit throwing up. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the airplane the airplane was great. The airplane was fine. There wasn't any damage to the airplane. Right. And that's, I think that's the, the moral of the story. The airplane is designed to take so much more turbulence than people are comfortable with. Yeah. They think that somehow if they're in turbulence, the airplane's going to be hurt. It's not. They're remarkably strong. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah, that's, that's reassuring yeah. after that story. That's like a good but That lesson. was a bad day. Yeah. And in 47 years of flying airplanes, that's the worst that I've seen. 
That's, okay. And Jacindra only had to go through two of those in a year and a half. Yes. So that's, it's like <laughs> promising. <Lucky> <laughs> it's promising. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. I'm going to take a real not subtle topic change here because today we put up a story about oh, yeah. Ryanair requesting that certain airports in England put a limit and don't serve passengers drinks before 10 a.m. and that they're only allowed to have two per boarding pass, which is to curb you know, drunk, incredibly intoxicated people showing up on their flights. You know, Ryanair, it's already a very f- stressful time to get on one of their planes. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I think that this isn't the first time that we've seen airlines requesting that airports kind of limit the drinks of their passengers. So, And alcohol on a plane is a, a hot topic. Is a hot topic. Right? So I know that, John, you have total authority as a pilot over who can and cannot get on your flight if they look drunk is that the situation the way the regulation reads is if they appear intoxicated then they don't fly that's a very wise way to write it because we're concerned about the safety of the passengers and crew and if a individual is intoxicated they won't necessarily follow the instructions of the flight attendants and they can pose a threat to the passengers and so the captains do have authority to deny boarding, and I've had to do it. Uh, And it's very quick that the thing escalates usually, uh, and it gets to be a very uncomfortable situation. But as far as the legal authority, it absolutely, the captain has authority. When you, as a flight attendant, came across people and you were like, ooh, this isn't so good, what was your decision process? I mean, you just have to go with your instincts. You can tell when a person has had too much. If there is any sign of them being aggressive or just not listening to you, not responding, absolutely, I would be glad to cut them off. The great thing about being part of a flight crew is you know that you have the pilots as well who have your back. So if we needed help, we always felt comfortable calling them up or if we are still on the ground talking to the pilots and getting their backup and support for situations like that, that can be really tough. But <laughs> I think that's another, another I'm going to go back to my secret, sort of transitioning here. Um, talking about alcohol on a plane for people that are allowed on a plane and start to drink. Obviously, it's up to you know your sort of judgment um, if they can keep drinking, but it's also a rule that flight attendants have to pour any alcohol, like if people bring it on board, right? If they bring it on board, if they bring it on board, right? On uh, no, no, they're not supposed to be. Bringing. No, but like oh. little. <laughs> Not 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 huge sizes. <laughs> no one's not opening. Has, not a handle. <laughs> Just like it has happened. <laughs> yes, it has. But small bottles. Yes. Yeah. Um, I actually have never had anyone hand me their own alcohol. I've had people when I'm picking up trash noticing that they're throwing away something that we don't carry on board and I don't know where it came uh, from. Okay. However, um, yeah, I, I actually never came across that. For the most Beca- part, it was people purchasing. Because that is a rule. Yeah, it's like the flight attendants yeah, the flight are, have full control. Are supposed yeah. to be like the bartenders, right? But maybe people think that they're sort of sneaking it on board when, you know, you can actually bring small amounts of alcohol on board. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know JetBlue earlier this year announced, you know, made a big sort of deal and say like, we'll happily pour your mm-hmm. alcohol for you. And yeah, they do sell those little cocktail kits. Yeah, for yeah. On board. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, it just it wasn't something I came across during my time there. Just secret drinkers. Yes, as discreet, discreet drinkers. Yeah, they listened to me. It wasn't a problem. You were just talking about things escalating, and I think that over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of the impact of technology and people videoing 
what happens on a plane come into play with the airlines and how airlines are reacting to passengers. Do you feel like that is a significant change in how pilots and flight attendants will behave knowing that people could react like that and pull out their phones? It's a good question. I like that question. I don't have to answer it. (laughs) I can, I'll I'll start. Uh, So I think it's, I don't think it's going to change how they behave very often. I think it's more just causing frustration for them because I think for the most part, flight crews are doing their job, doing it well and doing their best. And social media has just allowed people this platform to express their frustration with whatever they're frustrated with, whether it's valid or not. I mean, certainly some of these cases were out of hand, but you also see ones where the flight attendant was doing their job and following protocol, but people are expressing outrage and it just gets blown up on social media and uh, people maybe want the attention. So they are trying to catch people doing the wrong thing. And I just, I think that's unfortunate. I think it's a double-edged sword. The airline crews are really well-trained. I mean, it's, it's, it's a competitive job, and the training is pretty extensive. The people who get through that training understand what needs to be done and how to administer and deal with the public. And when something escalates, more often than not, it'll show a very professional crew responding the way that they should. And now what you end up with is something that validates why as an example, we put the passenger off because a passenger that gets belligerent um, and at any point crosses the line to be even a perceived threat to the crew, they're not going to fly. They're coming off one way or the other, or the airplane's not going to leave the gate. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of ways to handle it. Now, you know, social media makes a big deal on, on those rare occasions where the crew may not have responded in the best way possible. And that's a learning experience. But it's the same thing as the police officer's body cameras. It's a double-edged sword. It shows the good and the bad on both sides. And you wrote a story for us earlier, Sidra, about kind of like the worst kind of passenger, according yes. to <laughs> your experience as a gate agent and what people should not be doing when they try to get their way. Do you have any like tips for people on how to avoid those altercations but also still get what they want if it's possible? Sure. Yeah, so I think when you have an issue, try not to talk loudly and get everyone else involved on the plane. If you're mm-hmm. if you're escalating the situation where it becomes something more of a riot where other people are getting involved, that's too much. And there's good reason for them to get you off that plane because you are making the flight attendants and flight crew feel like you're not safe to have on board in the event of an emergency. So I would say present your case to the flight attendant in a calm, collected voice. Um, be very reasonable. Listen to the flight attendant's response. Don't be so caught up in your own frustration and issue that you're not taking in what they're saying. And uh, if you don't get the resolution at that point, don't cause further issues or endanger the people around you by escalating the situation and take it to the customer service team afterwards. There are plenty of ways that you can reach out to the airline and uh, express your frustration afterwards in a reasonable manner. Yeah. As passengers now, is there anything that you see happening on planes that you're like, oh, no, don't do that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Getting up in turbulence. That's Every what... <laughs> time I see somebody do it, it's like, please don't do that. That was my, what I was going to say. It's 
was my biggest frustration, especially when, so the pilots will occasionally call the flight attendants, tell them, be seated, we're going through turbulence. Now, if they tell the flight attendants to sit down, you better bet that there is some, there is expected to be some serious turbulence. Because for the most part, we're walking around, we're comfortable. We're like mountain goats on our feet on the air, <laughs> like walking around in bumpy air for the most part. But so if they're telling us to sit down, I'd be in my jump seat buckle down for some turbulence that we're prepared for. Um, and people would be walking past the jump seat, going to the bathroom. I'm like, what are you doing? Go sit down. If I'm sitting, you better be sitting. They're seeing it as an opportune time to use the bathroom when not many other people are. Right, exactly. But Which please, is a terrible please, admission. Please don't do that. <laughs> That's no, not necessarily. I did hear a story from one of my fellow flight attendants who kind of got redemption because turbulence hit when that passenger was in there and the blue toilet liquid Ooh. splashed up into their face. Oh. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, that makes me more uncomfortable than the turbulence story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Um, as passengers, you guys eat airline food now, but what is it like when you are on the other side of things? What do you eat? Because I feel like people complain or love different airlines and their food. Mm-hmm. What do you guys get stuck with? <laughs> is it true pilots don't eat the same thing? It can be. I mean, okay. it depends on the airline. Some airlines are, are more, um, and it depends on the type of flight, too. One of the misconceptions is on a lot of the domestic flights that the crews have food catered to them. That's not always the case at all. Um, there is, I can't tell you the number of times when one of the crew members will run off to the closest takeout food hamburger joint that we can find, grab however many, you know, hamburgers that we can run back to the airplane and that's lunch. Hmm. Yeah, I on longer flights they are required to give crew meals, but they were for the most part really, really sad, like a piece of bologna or, or sad looking meat between two slices of white bread and maybe a little slice of cheese if you're lucky so it the crew meals provided weren't usually things that i was willing to eat or (laughs) able to eat Um, so uh other than that like if a first class passenger didn't want to eat or turn down their meal we would be able to eat those so you're always kind of hoping that there are enough first class meals that go uneaten so that all the flight attendants can eat and then on international flights we were really lucky uh with the business class food to have like Really fancy, nice five-course meals, cheese plates, mousse, and ice cream sundaes to indulge on. (laughs) So how does that work? How do you decide who's eating, who's not, who's, you know, what what do you do on long flights? On long flights, I would usually either try to grab something if I had a break in the airport at whatever place I could because the crew meals were always fairly disgusting. Uh (laughs) Um, The food for sale, if there was something left over, we were allowed to eat. And those are usually fairly okay. But on international flights, the super long flights, I was eating way too much. I mean, cheese plate, cheese plate, cheese plate. Give me three (laughs) and an ice cream sundae for dessert and I'd be happy. So, like... Like in between service, you eat, or I don't know, I'm just like... Yeah, you just kind of make do with what you can. I mean, you serve your passengers, you pop into the galley, hope no one bothers you for a few minutes. (laughs) Have a few bites, and inevitably someone's going to come up and ask you for another pack of pretzels mid-bite, or someone's going to use the lavatory right there, and you're not going to lose your appetite. So (laughs) it's just... (laughs) How does the timing work for pilots? Because I know on long flights, there's time for people to sleep, which I know is the case with flight attendants and crew members too. Like, How does that shift change kind of work for you guys, John? On a long flight, there's relief pilots on board, and you'll see them sometimes. You'll see a pilot walking around, going to a seat, and that's an off-duty time. 
a rest time so that you have pilots that are as fresh as possible for the landing when you get to your destination. So usually the captain will ask if somebody wants a particular one of the rotations, you know, because you try to make them fairly long so that you can get a pretty good nap. Um, and But that's the trick. One of the things is, can you always, you know, nap on command? That's sometimes easier than, you know, than others. So, um, and generally speaking, you know, you'll try to catch whatever food that you can on your off break while the other two pilots are flying. So there's a nap room on some planes that you go to sleep? Or uh, where rumor do you, where you, has it. Rumor has it. Where do you eat? You know, I imagine well, these aren't on your lap. Yeah, and, and I mean, there are crew rest facilities on the big airplanes. Ooh. They're dedicated areas. Um, and I'll give you a perfect example that people don't know that exists. Is on the Boeing 777, um, there's a stairway right behind the flight deck. It's a small stairway that goes up into the overhead. And there's bunks up there for crew rest so that the pilots can have a quiet place to be able to sleep and eat during their duty break. On my airline, the pilots would get a seat in business class, uh, so they have their nice little curtained-off area for their naps, and then the flight attendants would get the uh, bunk rooms. Mm. So on some of the planes, like you said, it's going to be the little staircase that's going to be above the other passengers. On other aircraft, it's below, so you're walking down a little hatch Oof. and sleeping. I slept like a baby in Kuras. I, I don't know. I can't sleep on command now ever, but for some reason in those bunk beds, I would sleep so well. So it's like four hours? How long are you sleeping for? It really depends on the length of the flight. So that was always up to our flight leader to do the calculations and see once service was done, how much time we had left to get rest. Sometimes for European flights, it was usually about three hours or so. And how many people would be napping sort of at the same time? Depends on the size of your flight crew. It'd be about half the flight attendants at a time. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I, I mean, so that's I, where you guys all are when we're right. looking for more pretzels. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then when we come up and really don't want to be bothered, it's right. because we just want to go brush our teeth <laughs> and move on. Are there any other skills like being able to sleep on command, or at least try to, that you feel like you learned that are just skills that probably you would never come across in any other job? I think one of them is on a relatively short trip, the jet lag. Dealing with it, not coming off of your original body clock time, so that it's it's you know it's one o'clock in the afternoon where you are, but you need to get to sleep now so that and you wake up at three in the morning so that you stay on the same time. And if you're doing more than one of these trips back to back, if you don't do that by about the second or third day, you're a walking zombie. So dealing with jet lag in a way that passengers very rarely, if ever, see. Um, I think it's one of the things the international crews have to deal with. It sounds like it's just doing the exact opposite of what we tell everyone else on how to handle jet lag, which is stay up. Kind of, yeah. 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 My thing was I'd get into an international, like for Europe flights, I would get in, I'd go right to the hotel, sleep only one or two hours, and I'd go out and try to enjoy the city for as long as I could make it up and then go to sleep. But I, w- I would only allow myself to nap like one or two hours when I landed. And But the, tr- the trick was you're doing one of these flights, at least for me, and then three days later I'd be going to the West Coast for like a San Francisco turn, something like that. And it's just, it's like he said, you just have to learn to adjust your body clock and be okay with this. You, you just stop being exhausted no matter what change you, you make to your schedule. So where do those assignments come from, you know? Just the, the, the yeah. airline? So I'm for curious me, for both of you. 
we had to bid on our schedules every month. So we had a point system and I would bid based on what I wanted. So like when I was dating my husband, I really wanted New York layovers before I lived in New York. And so I would place my highest bid of numbers on New York layovers that were over 12 hours. You're like, I'm going all, all yes, in on New York. all in on New York, exactly. <laughs> and then I would, uh, since I was too junior to get international routes, I would just count on swapping schedules with those to add them onto my, my swapping trips to add them onto my schedule. <laughs> How about you, John? How does that work on your end? Pretty much the same. We bid schedules every month, um, and it depends on seniority. And then so it's, if I wanted particular days off, uh, I'd bid around those first. Or, you know, if I wanted to do a particular trip, I used to enjoy up and down the East Coast during the fall because that way you could see the leaves change. And so you do that same trip uh, three different weeks in a row, and that was always kind of fun. I would bid for those. But otherwise, you know, go to the West Coast for four days and trips like that, those were fun. Um, and it just is a, a solely, it depends on your seniority. And then as the trip gets real close, they're what we had a thing called open time and trips that are available, you could bid for to pick them up and adjust your schedule uh, that way. So it was all about the schedule of what days you wanted to work and what days you didn't. Yeah, that's how I got, got a lot of those really great trips as a junior flight attendant. I just keep my eye on open time and snatch them up as soon as I could. Nice. What would you say is like the most exhausting part of both of, the, of, both of y'all's jobs? Uh, I would say just having to be so flexible all the time you were constantly dealt hands that you didn't want um for example i was on a really great trip that i was excited about the layover for i had plans in the destination and i'm at my my first stop of a three-day trip and i get the call from crew scheduling telling me that i've been rerouted and instead of going home tomorrow or going to the destination i wanted tomorrow i was going elsewhere <laughs> and i was also being sent to somewhere I think it was Mexico City for like a 32 hour layover which was great but it was two days longer than I expected my trip to be so just having to constantly deal with these changes and weather delays um, on top of dealing with passengers who are angry about them when we're frustrated already it's it's just a constant battle with your own will <laughs> and patience how about you the adaptability kind of comes with airplanes I mean you know that's just something that pilots learn really early. Um, so that never bothered me too much. The fatigue, some of the trips push you pretty hard on fatigue, and that was probably one of the more difficult aspects of it is realizing that you've got to deal with fatigue, you've got to mitigate it to the best way that you can, but no matter what, you're going to have a fatigue issue. Red-eye flights, the coming, you know, the Europe flights, um, those are just, uh, they really do, they wear on you. I mean, because you're up all night, and it's... Uh, it's tough. And one last question before we wrap up, which is directed completely at you, Sidra, okay. which is today <laughs> oh, I have a question too. we did a debate. Okay, second to last question. <laughs> we did a debate about whether or not you should tip your flight attendant. Did you ever get tipped as a flight attendant? I did. And um, I talked about this in the article, but I did get tipped. It wasn't regularly, maybe like three times a month or so. People would sometimes try to give me like a dollar. I'm like, I don't need a dollar. You know, I, I went through a lot of training to get this job. Like, and, and I feel like I felt like I should not, not better than like that. If you're but not you know going to give I mean. me nothing... anything, that's fine. But right. don't give me a dollar. Exactly. <laughs> so I would always turn down like small tips. But if someone was really insistently pushing a $20 bill in my hand, I wasn't making much money as a flight attendant. It was something I really was like, oh, I could use that for a nicer meal tonight or a room service at my layover. 
over. So I, I occasionally took a $20 tip, although it's not, it's kind of frowned upon. Interesting. My like question. Oh, no, 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 no. I just I, I had never heard that that was something that people did. And so reading about it today, I was like, oh, shoot, all these times that I've flown, like maybe I should be tipping my phone. No, you, you really don't need to. I always felt a little embarrassed when people tried to tip me, honestly. So it, like I wasn't I, I'd been a waitress in high school and stuff. You know, it just I didn't feel like that it was the same job anymore. So you don't you, you just you don't expect tips. And I think for the most part, flight attendants don't really want tips. They'd rather you just behave yourself and give them a compliment if uh, if you think they're giving good service. Mm. Okay. Now, my question is just when you guys, you know, fly as passengers, where do you like to sit on planes? Or is there a secret best spot? You know, everyone's always asking, where's the safest seat on the plane? Or where's the best seat on the plane? I like to sit up front in first class. There you go. Okay, okay. First class is my choice. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Wrong crowd, I guess. That's a good answer. Okay, fine. So everyone just sit in first class if you ever wanted to know. Awesome. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you both for joining us. Um, I'm going to do the spiel at the end, which Brad usually does and I will not do quite as well. But you can find us and a lot of Sidra's writing and photos on cntraveler.com. We are at cntraveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and SoundCloud. If you have any questions for John and Sidra or any podcast ideas, please let us know on Twitter. And Catherine, where can people find you on the internet? So I'm on Twitter at KJ Lagrave, L-A-G-R-A-V-E. John, how about you? Um, through you would probably be the best bet. Okay, okay. great. Contact me at Oh Hey There Mayor uh, if you want to talk to John. And how about you, Sidra? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Sidra Photography. That's S-I-D-R-A Photography. Or my Facebook photography page is Sidra Monreal Photography. So, yes, please follow. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys for joining us again. And see you next week, listeners. Bye.